Good afternoon, David. Pax Vobiscum. Thank you, my friend. Peace be with you also, Joe. So for you and the rest of our listeners, it's going to be a very special month. We're going to have two episodes that are linked closely together, and they involve childhood cancer. Obviously, you have a, an extended history and experience with childhood cancer, but so do many others, unfortunately. And although September is the official month for recognizing childhood cancer, March is a very special time for you and a specific community associated with St. Baldrick's Foundation. We're going to be exploring that more in detail with Susan Hurd, St. Baldrick's Senior Director of Distinguished Giving, and yourself in a follow-up episode. But for this episode, I want to discuss your direct experience with childhood cancer, if that's okay with you. That's okay with me, Joe. I'd love to talk to our audience about my son, Tommy, my wife, Linda and Mark, and our experience with childhood cancer. As difficult as it can be, it's an important conversation to have. So Joe, whenever you're ready, let's start this interview. I want to thank you for agreeing to this interview, providing me and our listeners more information. I know that March is a very important time for you and your family and the community of families that have suffered through childhood cancer, and it's important because of St. Baldrick's. And we're certainly going to get into that, but I would like to first start with setting the stage, so to speak, and trying to understand where you were prior to Tommy's diagnosis, I think it's important to know that, you know, you had a life prior to cancer. And that some of it was lost, some of it you saved, some of it was transformed. So can you take me briefly into a description of the Gossers? Yeah. Well, Gosser Manning, you know, Linda didn't take my last name, of course. (laughs) Joe, I'm happy to do that. I like to talk about myself. I love to talk about my family. In 2004, I was working as an assistant dean at my alma mater, the law school at CU Boulder. And Linda had just completed her PhD at the University of Denver in communication. The boys, well, Tommy was five years old, Mark not even point two, when I found an ad in a professional publication seeking someone to fill a tenure-track job at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, and loving my wife, I encouraged her to apply for that job. Be careful what you ask for, Joe. You just might get it. She got the job. The woman who hired her would later eulogize Tommy at his memorial, Dr. Claire Jacobs, a good friend of ours hired Linda with great enthusiasm. And so suddenly I walked away from what I considered to be the happiest life a man could have, home in Boulder, job at my alma mater that I loved, beautiful, brilliant wife. Everyone was healthy and happy. And to support her, we packed up and moved 1,500 miles away to Virginia, moving to the south from the west. As I would learn, there were very different places. We moved in June of 2004 at the end, and Linda started in August of that year, her first year as a full-time 
academic seeking tenure. I intentionally did not work that first year we were here so that I could provide daycare to Mark, let Linda get going on her deal. Tommy started kindergarten that month and it was a great year. It, it really was. Some difficulties acclimating to the south side and the weather. Uh, <laughs> it was good. And that first year ended on a higher note when I was invited to join the faculty at Christopher Newport Department of Government. My first full-time college teaching job. I had taught at the university level before, but this would be my first full-time job. We began the academic year of 2005, just thrilled. Now, Tommy had been suffering from some pain in his leg, as he described it, in his hip area, for a couple of months at that point, but we'd had him to the doctor a number of times, and you don't think of cancer the first thing. You think growing pains, what have you. We finally got him in for an x-ray in September 2005, just three weeks into my job. And I was preparing for my class in judicial process by watching the confirmation hearings for Chief Justice nominee John Roberts at that time. I was giving a, an exam that day to two sections of criminal justice. And so I was ready for that. That's all I had to do. It was an easy day, if you will. And then the phone rang. And I'll never forget the phone call. The radiologist was calling me, the doctor. Basically, what he had to say was, your son has cancer. Which immediately floored me, and I burst into tears. I asked, what do we do? And he said, you need to be in Washington, D.C. in two days, the National Children's Hospital and the NIH. See the foremost doctor in Ewing sarcoma, which is what they suspected Tommy's cancer was, Dr. Martin Malware, to do the biopsy and review treatment options to formally diagnose Tommy. Fortunately, Linda is from the D.C. area. Her mom still lives there, and so it's a three-hour drive, and we... We're able to make it up, but those tears led me into my departmental office where the secretary immediately called the chair and I cried and cried. But this is all happening in the span of five minutes. And in five more, I have to give an exam to the first class. And the second, the chair didn't want me to do it, but I knew that I had to gather myself before I could talk to Linda. She was also teaching class at the same time. And I made the decision to get myself together and then to walk all the way across campus, no small march from my department to hers, and tell her in person uh, the terrible news. So where was Tommy at this point? I presume he was in school. He had just started first grade. He's only not even two weeks into first grade. They start public school K-12 in Virginia after Labor Day. So this was September the 13th. I know the date. He had been in school not... 10 days in this first grade class. And, and after I broke it to Linda, gave her time to try to digest it and, and make sense of it, we then went to Tommy's school, Hydenwood Elementary, just hop, skip, and a jump from the house between the university and, and the house and informed the staff and principal of the situation and went and pulled Tommy out of class only about an hour early. We didn't want to waste any time. 
He told them that the doctors thought he was sick, that he might have cancer, and that we needed to go and get more tests done. I didn't have the technical knowledge at that time about his disease to explain it to him. And, you know, he was six years old. Right. He was bright. He, he's exceedingly bright, but six-year-olds shouldn't know about cancer, right? Right. So literally in the span of months, your family was professionally transitioning career-wise, you know, normal things, normal progression for a family, you know, changing job. The move across country was probably very tough. I can understand that. So all of these, quote, normal things, unquote, to deal with in terms of transition, you ran into the brick wall of something no family wants to face, and that's childhood cancer. So we're talking September 13th, 2005, correct? Correct. Sitting atop Maslow's hierarchy, self-actualization, my wife and I and my family, one minute struck all the way back down to the safety level the next. Peace had suddenly been taken away from us. And, and for Tommy, you know, physiological need for health. Just Absolutely, Joe. So at that point, you had a lot of decisions to make. Obviously, the trip to D.C. was first. So that was done almost immediately, correct? That, that same Yes, week. we were up there by Thursday, two days later. They made the appointment. I just told them we'd be there. Yeah, we went up the next day. So it was a Tuesday that he was diagnosed. We drove up to D.C. on Wednesday because Tommy's surgery was scheduled for early Thursday. The biopsy and the staging, the diagnosis was cancer. We stayed on site. Once he was released, we then went and stayed with Linda's mom for a couple of days. So I know from my own experience, that initial unofficial diagnosis, you know, here, here's your numbers, here's the imaging that we're seeing, but we don't know. We don't know how serious it is. So basically you were in that, in that zone, but not knowing how serious. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to the diagnosis, you know, we're bewildered and the internet wasn't quite what it is today. There are so many resources available to people, but you know, it was spottier back in 2005, what you could access and learn quickly about this. Now, we got the diagnosis the same day that Dr. Malware performed it, took us into his office that afternoon. Indeed, Tommy had Ewing sarcoma, a cancer that only affects around 200, 250 children a year in America, about 1% of all childhood cancer cases, a genetic cancer, as he told us, the translocation of one gene on a certain chromosome. It did not come to Tommy through Linda and I. You know, it's not inherited. It's just your body having a problem in its DNA. Now, Dr. Malaware informed us that Tommy's tumor located in his pelvis, a little bigger than an egg, was inoperable. There was no way they could operate to remove it. And so all we could do was approach it with chemotherapy and radiation. It was stage four, the most dire stage of the four stages for cancer. And it was metastatic, meaning it had invaded other parts of his body beyond the original tumor site. It had gone on a trip around his body. And now Dr. Malware told us simply to go home go to the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk and 
begin treatment. So how did you and Linda, there's logistics involved. I mean, the family still has to function somehow. You each have to function as individuals. How did that work? We were blessed with the reception that the university gave us. We determined that Linda would take leave for the year and put her 10-year clock on pause. She'd only been there one year, 10 years, first six years in the job, but that I would remain full-time. I taught that year, and Linda took care of Tommy. I took care of Mark. My mother-in-law helped me with that. But Linda spent over 100 nights with Tommy in the hospital during his chemotherapy and radiation treatments, which lasted for over a year. Five different chemotherapy agents in his so-called cocktail. The doctors assured me that it was the roughest possible chemotherapy any adult or child could go through. And they gave him a 20% chance of living for five years. So how did that affect you were sort of, you know, you were new to uh, the university. And so you continued. How was that for you? I mean, having full trust in your spouse is one thing. It, it truly is. There's comfort there, but it can't be total comfort because as a, as a father, you must have wanted to, to be there. Absolutely. And, I worried about Tommy, of course, but I worried about Linda, but I had to make Mark a priority. And so my life became actually very simple. Okay. I went to work, you know, I got prepared. I went to work, I taught, I came home and it was the Mark and Dave show just like it had been for the last year. He was now three years old. You know, it became an allocation of duties and responsibilities. And Linda was Tommy's primary caregiver. I would spell her at the hospital from time to time. Or when Tommy did some of his treatments in the clinic, I might take him if I was available just to give her a break. But she was on Tommy duty and, and I had Mark. I probably wasn't the best father to him at that time in the sense that I was perfectly happy if he was content to eat you know, fruit roll-ups and watch Blue's Clues or Dora the Explorer while I sat in a chair in shock, disbelief, almost numb, and simply started consuming my feelings and quarts of ice cream and Costco-sized portions of full-sized candy bars, which between that and the medicines I went on for my mental health at that time, probably what led me to be diabetic. You guys caught up in a sort of a structure. There's a sort of structure to cancer treatments, sort of ancillary activities such as Make-A-Wish, those other support mechanisms. I know that you and Linda were involved with those as well, correct, for Tommy? Yes. Um, we were fortunate to have the professionals we had, the doctors, nurses, caregivers at CHKD, but also social workers and the support of a charity here that provides hospice to children with life-threatening illnesses known as Edmark. And they provided nurses, they provided a social worker for Tommy who ended up becoming one of his closest friends and he changed her life. Literally, she attests to that. And that was of great importance because I didn't have a single friend here. I was thought I was going to make friends by working. Like I told you, I got prepared, I went to work, 
I came home. I wasn't interested in anything other than doing my job and taking care of my son, my youngest son. I should I should note that the first question that I asked Dr. Malware after he revealed Tommy's diagnosis was his market risk, because I hadn't let him tell me yet that, about the nature of the mechanism involved in Tommy's disease. Um, he immediately said, no, Mark's not going to get sick. Mark will not have this. So in this whirlwind around Tommy, your family restructured itself as it should for this, these treatments, this fight, and you're saying that really you were, as a person, degrading. You were sort of on the edge of things. You were using all your strength just to maintain some basic structure, basic function in your life. Is that correct? Yeah. Fortunately, I quit drinking a few years prior to that. I didn't fall back into the bottle to drown my sorrows, if you will. Uh, like I say, I used candy bars and ice creams. I would say from you know an outside observer, you were on Caring Bridge. You were very active in terms of communicating with people, giving updates. Yeah, this is people. before Facebook, right? And and Cambridge still exists, and it's still a, it's a, still a great platform that is sort of a neutral. And the blog uh, is I, still up there. Yeah, I I posted. I was the primary poster. Lindy made a couple of posts, but the blog was hit over fifty thousand times because the majority of our friends and family lived in Colorado. They were concerned. They were worried. This somewhat during his first bout with cancer, but even more so when it came back. We already know that you were for that first year you were locked into the horrific but necessary pathway of chemotherapy and treatments. And your favorite radiation, right? Oh, it's 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 a lovely it's a lovely experience. I'm so sorry. Um, it's a lovely you know, it's a lovely experience in the sense that you know that you're getting to the heart of the cancer. I mean it's like calling in a nuclear strike on your position, but it's one of those feelings that here you foreign so and so take this. It's one of those things, right, that you want treatment. Necessary evil. Exactly, exactly. So that, that first year, sort of a blur, sort of setting up this, yeah. I, hate that, I hate this new reality, yeah. to use that phrase, but it was a new reality. It changed after that first year because Linda went back to work and I stopped. And in the second year, a lot of which Tommy was no evidence of disease after the chemotherapy and radiation in 15 months. They gave him, they don't say remission anymore. They say no evidence of disease. The scans, tests, et cetera, showed that the cancer wasn't ravaging him anymore. So we had a little respite from the whole thing. And we took our Make-A-Wish trip to Hawaii, Tommy's choice to go see the ocean, to hopefully see an octopus, to see a beauty that he had only dreamed of. And we did that. And it was lovely and delightful. We lost Mark for about a half an hour <laughs> in Maui. So that sent us into a stroke. Oh, great. We've got healthy Tommy, but where the hell is Mark? <laughs> well, um, it is an island. Um, you know, well, you know, and, and we were walking the beach, of course, and I immediately assumed he had walked into the ocean and was gone forever. Oh. I, we, we, we parked Tommy at a restaurant after telling a quick story to the people there. And she ran one way down the beach and I ran down the other. Spot in Maui where it's all resort. And I'm running and stopping at every shop and every resort asking if they've seen a little blonde three-year-old. And when I got to the third resort, which is probably at least a half a mile away, there he was with the security guard. And when I ran in, the guy immediately said, 
he must be Mark's father because I'm sure I look completely freaked out like I was. So I collected him and didn't have cell phones. I just had to go back to the restaurant and wait for Linda to return from her excursion trying to find him. But yeah, all's well that ends well with that one, right? I love that story because it just shows, again, a, a normal, anyone that hasn't lost a child for a few minutes, I don't Be glad. Know. Be glad. Yes, be glad. It's, it's a horrifying experience, but it's also a... You're, you, you go sliding down the pyramid, right, Joe? Exactly. Sliding down. Man. At that point when you were taking these trips, you know, having these experiences with Tommy, was there any question that cancer was going to come back or were you hoping for something? How were you at that point in terms of, were you just waiting for the next shoe to drop or? No, no, I, I had to believe that no more shoes were going to drop, that we were done with the hospital with chemotherapy with radiation that Tommy's cancer would remain unnoticed, but that wasn't to be the case ultimately. But I threw myself wholeheartedly into the hope and belief that he was cured. I had to find peace. Right. And that's the difficult part about maintaining peace, as we both have found in our lives, that you have to hope for peace. You have to accept it when it comes and, and hope that it lasts, but also be realistic enough to know that it's not a given. It once once obtained, it needs to be maintained somehow, and it can't just be inside. It needs to be outside as well, as we've learned from Maslow. So from September 13th, 2005, a year's worth of treatment, and then how long was Tommy in the state of no evidence of disease? I presume that he was being... He was still being... They were still running scanned. regular scans, yes, tests, etc. Came back 2007. So treatment from 2005 to 2006, no evidence of disease. 2007, when we got the next phone call that it, the cancer had returned. And, you know, Tommy had gone back to school. He was in second grade. It's all of first grade, all of those 10 days. Never went back and didn't, they didn't keep him back for a, for a second because he was so smart. It was crazy. He had a wonderful teacher in second grade, Robin Atley, who is devoted to him to this day. She took care of the little boy who went bald in her classroom, and he began more treatment in the effort to save his life. There was a rescue chemotherapy that they put him through. There was more radiation, and then he enrolled, we enrolled him in five different clinical trials in an effort, a desperate effort to save him. Linda was still at work full time, and I I was actually working again at the university too, teaching two classes each semester. But again, Linda's mom came down, helped us out. My parents were still working in Colorado. So we leaned heavily on the Edmark staff, on Linda's mom, on as many people as we could. It was all hands back on deck. They gave Tommy a 5% chance to survive five years when the cancer came back. And that's when it got very sobering, internally desperate, because you can't let the kid know just how scared you are. We had very frank conversations with him. He asked, am I going to die? He asked him. We told him, well, yeah, someday everybody does, but you're going to, you're going to, hey, you're going to make it through this. And, and he believed. He, Tommy had a wonderful spirit the whole way through. These kids are the bravest people you, you'll ever meet. Now, some would argue that ignorance is bliss. And so when you're a child, you don't really get it. But, you know, he'd been to his grandfather's funeral. He understood that life ends with death, but when you're old, 
you know, when you're, when you're old, that's when it's supposed to happen. Not when you're six, seven, eight, nine, two, three, four, what pick a, pick a number under 18. That's a child. Right. right. And Tommy actually met other children who were going through treatment. There was like a little community as I remember you relating to me. Yeah. Became close with a number of families, basically all of those who went into treatment at the same time as Tommy, because that's who you hung out with in the hospital and at the clinics, the other people in the same phases of treatment, the children of similar ages. So we made new friends in a club none of us wanted to be in. And some of them, quite a few of them, are close friends now to this day and have joined us in our efforts to fund research to find cures for childhood cancer. Cancer is the leading cause of death when you look at diseases among children. No disease kills more children than cancer. And a child is diagnosed with cancer every two minutes of the day. Tick-tock, tick-tock, there's another one. Tick-tock, tick-tock, there's another one. So we got very involved. We had already been, we actually threw ourselves into advocacy and fundraising during Tommy's initial phase of treatment. He was, uh, his adventure, as he called it, was chronicled in three front page articles of the local paper. First, the family, we made our first visit to Capitol Hill to lobby Congress for changes to the law to help children. Tommy was a part of that effort, and so was Mark. I've done it ever since, well over a dozen times. And we joined the St. Baldrick effort, which provided us with an avenue for support, for fulfillment, and feeling like you're doing something, you're making a difference. And Tommy loved it. It became very near and dear to him. And shortly before he died, he made me promise to him that I would always work with St. Baldrick's to try to save other children and families from his fate. And that meant raising money and engaging in advocacy. So did you become aware of St. Baldrick's sort of organically through Tommy's treatments? Yes, through the hospital. St. Baldrick's was relatively new at that time. It had only been around for a couple of years. The Children's Hospital had been involved in starting up a local effort, uh, and they'd been the recipient of, of St. Baldrick's funding over the years. You know, I did it in 2006. I took 2007 off, came back, and we did it in 2008. Raised over $20,000 compared to 6000 the first time. I led the event in funds raised. My mom shaved. My dad shaved. Tommy's best friend, Maddie, joined us for the event. It's actually a lot of fun. Crazy how much fun you can have with a bunch of little bald kids and a bunch of bald parents. But um, when, when he made me promise to always work for them, it was, it, it was of course, you know, I, absolutely, Tommy, that's what I'll do. And I've really dedicated a lot of my time and life to advocating for children with cancer and raising money to fund the research. Like I say, Tommy asked me to do this just a couple of weeks before he died. And uh, I just want to share with the audience, maybe to conclude this portion of the interview. (sighs) On Sunday, October 5th, 2008, Tommy's breathing changed. He had been providing together with nurses who would attend each day all of his care, his catheter, his bodily needs. He was on heavy morphine. He would go in and out, uh, if you will. He slept a lot uh, when he woke up. If he was hungry, he'd tell me that he wanted a blizzard, and I'd run to Dairy Queen and get three different blizzards, hoping he would like one of them. 
He was emaciated. He was paralyzed. His breathing changed. The death rattle came on. Although I didn't know what that was at that time. When he went down with Tommy and at 5.11 in the morning, Linda woke me up and said he was gone. And Tommy had literally died in his mother's arms in our home. The last thing that he did was to ask Linda for a drink of water. So she got a glass and brought it to him. He took it up to his lips and she realized he wasn't drinking. And she felt him, checked for a pulse, and couldn't find one. And so three hours later, the moment I'll also just never forget, I carried my dead son out of my house and placed him in the hearse. I wouldn't let them just put him on a stretcher and roll him out. He, after he died, we contacted people. We got Mark arranged for some care and we bathed Tommy and placed him in his favorite SpongeBob PGs. And, and that was that was not the last time I saw him because I had to identify his body under the law the next day. Doug, I need to take a break. Understandable. That is a remarkable narrative, David, and it's tough to go on, really. But that's what you did. Tommy's journey on this earth had ended, and another one really began for you and your family. How did you, what happened next? Yeah. Well, we had planned for this moment to an extent and had arranged for the woman who hired Linda, Claire Jacobs, to provide Tommy's eulogy at a service we scheduled much too quickly. Don't rush when your loved ones die unless you have a compelling reason. Take time, breathe. They're, they're not going to die again. Uh, and you owe it to them to allow as many people as are interested to attend their memorial service, their celebration of life, their funeral, whatever you may call it. But I wanted it over. I wanted it over fast. And so I spent the next couple of days handling all of the memorial arrangements, letting Linda just be with Mark. I wrote Tommy's obituary uh, coming in at 1,500 words. And I think they're only usually around two or 300, but I couldn't help myself. I created the video tribute to him, a slideshow of his life set to music, two songs, Fix You by Coldplay and Good Riddance, Time of Your Life by Green Day. And I worked at the university to get their second largest theater available to us for the memorial service on Friday afternoon. Why Friday afternoon? That Friday afternoon. Ah, a mistake. You've got to allow people time to plan themselves to travel. Uh, why not Saturday when people aren't at work? That kind of thing. But I, 
I digress to an extent, but I wasn't necessarily thinking clearly and I wanted the experience to be over. Now, a handful of friends and relatives managed to make it in on short notice. The community came together. Fortunately, it turned out to be a half day for the schools. I didn't even know, but it still worked out to have this service in the afternoon for the friends and teachers who wanted to come. I don't know how many people were there. I was sitting in the front row crying as Claire eulogized him. And, and Joe, you, your words were an important part of Claire's eulogy uh, as it happens. And if I may, I would like to read a post that you put on CaringBridge that Claire found in her research for the eulogy. And I didn't realize until last October that that connection existed because I didn't remember the eulogy and I didn't have a copy. I didn't read it, but Claire posted it on the anniversary of his death, his angel day last year. And there are eight sections and number six begins this way. David's friend J.M. included the following quote from Mark Helprin's book, Memoir from Ant Proof Case, in the Caring Ridge Post. And you wrote the following, Joe. I was graduated from the finest school, which is that of the love between parent and child. Though the world is constructed to serve glory, success, and strength, one loved one's parent and one's children, despite their failings and weaknesses sometimes even more on account of them. In this school, you learn the measure, not of power, but of love, not of victory, but of grace, not of triumph, but of forgiveness. You learn as well, and sometimes, as I did, you learn early, that love can overcome death, and that what is required of you in this is memory and devotion. Memory and devotion. To keep your love alive, you must be willing to be obstinate and irrational and true, to fashion your entire life as a construct, a metaphor, a fiction, a device for the exercise of faith. Without this, you will live like a beast and have nothing but an aching heart. With it, your heart, though broken, will be full, and you will stay in the fight until the very last. And I guess... You didn't write it. You shared these poignant words, but it, it speaks so well of your high literacy, your devotion to books and knowledge, your devotion to me, to Tommy, to try and help, to try and provide some comfort in a time when there wasn't much peace. And I wish I had really heard these words at the time you shared them because the quote leads us to the point where you have to throw yourself into faith in order to find peace in your memory and devotion and my memory and devotion to Tommy are unquestionable but without faith I did become a beast I did live with a broken heart and 
until recently, I, I lived that way. I lived as less than a full person, less, certainly not self-actualized. Uh, my esteem eventually went. But having found faith recently, I have gained a great deal of peace in my life simply by listening to the words of the Lord, the scriptures, the priests, well, pastors, um, and I was finally able to write my ship and let Tommy rest at peace, and that was the most compelling I came to realize that if I had no peace, Tommy couldn't have any peace. And, and what do we say to people or about people that die, Joe? We, we say rest in peace. Boy, they deserve that. That's true. And I don't need to add to Tommy's woes. I know that he's an angel. I've known that all along. I know that he's protected me, that he's with me, that he loves me. And now I know that I'll see him again. And that's something I was not certain of before. Tommy believed in God, was an altar boy at the church that had joined the church where we built a playground in his honor with his college money. And I'm thankful for the peace that I found now. And I would say that Again, you know, very moving narrative that you just gave us, David. I appreciate that. You know, the rational part, speaking from a rational heart, I suppose, rather than a rational mind. Because I think that we can understand rationally what's going on around us. I mean, it doesn't, sure. there's a lot of information, there's a lot of physical support, there's a lot of intellectual support when you go through a disease process with yourself or, or a loved one, but it's really the emotional process that it, it's tough to get a grip on. It's tough to maintain because, you know, things are moving so fast. And I really didn't realize how quickly you attempted to move on from Tommy's journey. I, I don't remember the, the time frame. Um, obviously, I was not able to. And I probably wasn't communicating it, you know. Uh, we were we were focused locally. Um, I have to commend the university once again, and Claire Jacobs. Uh, the university allowed us to take leave of two weeks, even though we were both teaching. The first week was spent dealing with uh, the rational side, if you will, of Tommy's death. The second week, we went to the Outer Banks, North Carolina, a destination where people go to enjoy themselves, enjoy the beach. Claire and her husband, Michael, are partners with some other friends. They own a fabulous beach house. And Claire said, go to the beach for a week. Don't talk to anybody. Don't just, the three of you, Linda, David, and Mark, go to the beach and do anything or nothing, whatever you want. And so, that allowed us a little room to breathe and start into 
what, a, a term that I really don't like, but it's true, the new normal. I fought the new normal for a long time. I, I didn't have the tools to deal with the normal state of my son, my firstborn, my child, Tommy, being dead at age nine. But we tried. I even tried watching a McCain-Obama debate. You know, they, it was election season, and I am a professor of politics and government. Um, and after about five minutes, I just shut it off. Couldn't care less. So how do you, you know, to wrap this up, basically that was the beginning of the end of Maslow's hierarchy for you, really, in terms of a stable one, at least, um, until relatively recently in your life. Yes, I, I actually turned out to be what my doctor describes as a highly dysfunctional, highly functioning person. I managed to teach for the next five years, actually, scratch that, the next seven years, five at CNU, two at William and Mary, and Linda earned tenure and, and lives moved on, but I slowly descended. I quickly, the, the pyramid fell apart instantly, but my slide down, it was slow. I didn't lose my shit. Uh, until 2013, it would come and it would go. These cycles of grief that I described, you know, St. Baldrick's would get me up, Tommy's birthday and the anniversary of his death would bring me down. Holidays were difficult. Uh, there wasn't a lot of respite in the cycles of my life. I took refuge where I could, but to her credit, my wife kept it together for 10 years I said and was there for Mark fully where I floated in and out of engagement for a while and Mark and I were very close I had cared for him for a couple of years right the, the first year here I I regret that I regret missing portions of his life in a sense because I, I was so deep in depression and grief, insomnia, post-traumatic disorder, anxiety, manic behavior. Uh, thank God Mark had Linda. Thank God I had Linda. And thank God I now have God. So... For so long, you were the cartoon character sort of running in air. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was I was still moving, but I was going backwards and then, somehow. And then eventually, it yeah, splat. But the good news is that the good news. With, all, with, with all cartoon characters, you come back. Uh, somehow you become flat as a pancake, and then you spring back to life. And I, I you know, I believe in, in terms of, of faith, and uh, life's journey, that's exactly how everyone can be. I keep on telling my myself and my family that, 
you know, you decide how you want to be right now. I mean, there's nothing preventing you. I mean, the past is the past. And it, it, it provides a crushing force if you let it. But the crush you know, me. I, I let it. I, you're right, Joe. I, I won't disagree with you at all. Now that I've found some peace. I'm... And going back to that quote from Mark Helfrin's book, A Memoir from Out Handproof Gates, and if you haven't read any Mark Helfrin uh, people, go out there. I mean, he writes beautifully in terms of, you know, the the real content of our faithful lives. It's, it's difficult to encompass what Mark Helfrin writes. It's simply us. He writes of feelings and how we process them and the conclusions that we come to. And in that quote specifically, he's basically saying, and the character in, in the book is saying that, you know, this this journey that we're on requires structures that are not natural. I think that we're finding that from Maslow, that really you find yourself in circumstances that require some form of structure, whether that's, you know, reading the Bible, going to church, um, reaching out to others, having, uh, you know, uh, a meditative time every single day, or reaching out to support groups or friends. And if you don't do those things, the past is going to crush you. Your pain yep. is going to crush you. Yep. And you can't, you, can't, you can't let it. You absolutely cannot let it, or you're going to waste your life. And I think that every life is full of potential, and it might sound trite. We are a part of this great universe that perceives itself and is able to perceive the greatness that's around us. And if we don't do so, it's a shame. And I know there's a lot of things that are trying to prevent us from doing that, but it's it's imperative. Yeah, Joe, right. I allowed it to overcome my life. And, you know, it's a catch-22. Once you start down that path, it's hard to get off it. It reinforces itself. The feelings, the behaviors accumulate. And so it wasn't an immediate explosion. It was a steady decline, as I described. I wish that I could have those years back so that my wife, my son, both of my sons, didn't have to live with me the way they did. Uh, you know, I'm not... Being sad and depressed and sick isn't any fun, and it's not any fun for the people around you. And and I just, I sought lots of help. I just never found the help I needed until I finally opened up my heart to the notion of religion. And very quickly, uh, found it in my heart. Felt the Holy Spirit, felt the, the healing power of accepting God loved me, Jesus loved me, the Holy Spirit was with me. And just how powerful it could be in terms of bringing structure 
into my life so that I could finally have peace. And I hope that journey continues, Dave. So Thank you, Joe. I hope so, too. With your help, I think it will. You know, Dave, I think that stories like this are a reminder of what drives people in their lives. And it's important to recount them and to be able to recount them in a very open way, despite the fact that it is so difficult. So I really appreciate your effort in this. But it's obvious that brings you some level of peace talking about it and understanding that there was a journey, that it was real, and that you are now living a new life. There's other stories that are out there. You've introduced me to some folks that have similar journeys to yours. And oftentimes that was within the context of the St. Baldrick's Foundation and the fundraising efforts and the events that were associated with that organization. I believe that you have got a special guest lined up for us for the next podcast. Yes, Joe. I'm happy we'll be bringing in Susan Hurd, the Senior Director of Distinguished Giving for St. Baldrick, to tell us more about the organization and also share her childhood cancer story. Now, the people who work for St. Baldrick, driven by the desire to help end the suffering in companies, childhood cancer, all too often, one in five children who's diagnosed will pass away. And for those who survive, it's too grueling an ordeal. We are all driven by memory and devotion, Joe. Memory and devotion. The words that you shared before ring so true. The memories that we have of our children and of their journeys with childhood cancer, the devotion that we have to them and now to other children, children will never know. That's really why I'm able to find peace with it because combined with faith for me, now it's, it's really working my own personal cure. I, I almost feel, feel a little guilty if I'm being helped by doing this too. Truly, that's well said and heartfelt. And despite the fact that the St. Baldrick's Foundation focuses on getting funds to bring to childhood cancer research and study, it really is a structure of faith. St. Baldrick's is a structure of faith. And I think that we're going to find that out in the next episode.